And I think that if there's no one else here to gain anything from this message, it's me. In fact, I probably could just turn this thing around like this and preach this way and uh, listen and pretend that Jesus is speaking to us because I really believe in so many ways I believe this is Jesus' word to us. Let me just bear my heart a little bit this morning. I know that we are, um, have peeled the onion here a little bit, and we're a much smaller, unified body today. It's much closer, it's nice, it's neat, it's packed, it's tight, it's good. But I believe the Lord's still working on us. I believe there's still more work to be done on us. And I tell you that because he's working on me. And if he's working on me, then he's, he's bound to be working on you. And I believe that as we go through this lesson and over the lessons ahead of the times ahead, that the Lord is still working and he's still going to do a mighty thing in our midst and in our lives. Because uh, let me tell you right now that, that there are many people that sit in churches week after week after week across this country that are not going to make heaven. I'll tell you that right now. There's many people that sit in church every Sunday morning and come their death or come the rapture, they're not going to go to heaven. And my prayer this morning and my heart's cry this morning is that every person that comes to this church, every person down to the youngest to the oldest, make heaven. And so therefore, I have my responsibility to, to teach and preach truth. The reason most of these people that we're talking about that aren't going to make heaven, it's because they have pastors and preachers that will not preach the truth of God. They preach a message that makes people feel good so that they go home happy. They go home feeling good about themselves for the moment. But woe to that preacher and woe to that teacher because if those people don't walk out of there with a conviction of the Holy Spirit on their lives every Sunday then what is he doing? What is he doing? Because we are talking today about the cost of being a disciple. What does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it cost me personally? I'll tell you what it costs me personally. It costs my life. And here's what I'm going to say today. I am not going to tell you how to be a disciple. I'm just going to tell you to be a disciple. I don't know what it takes for you. I can't lay it out for you. I cannot give you the formula for your life, what it takes to be a disciple. All I can cry out to you is to be one, is to be one, is to do whatever it requires, whatever the Holy Spirit requires of your heart, do it. Do it. Do not go into this thing thinking, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. It's a dangerous, dangerous position to take. It's a dangerous mentality to take. As a disciple, we are called to be like Christ and to make it our goal to keep him at the center point of our life every day. Every day. So now, the, the American way of Christianity is something like this. I love to watch American pickers or pawn stars. Do you know what that is? Anybody have History Channel on their station? Anybody watch American pickers? Anybody watch pawn stars? What do you like about that show? Tell me, what do you like about American Pickers? You just like it. The treasures, right? What do you like about pawns? What are people trying to do when they can get something that they think has a big treasure? What are they trying to do? What, what are they trying to pay for it? As little as possible. True? The thing I like about it, I like to see somebody trying to get a deal. We all like to get a deal, don't we? We all like to go to a garage sale and see something we want and then try to nicker it down or uh, try to bargain it down to the best of their, our ability to get the best price we can. Everybody loves a deal, right? Everybody loves to negotiate a deal. And it's fun to watch it. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with trying to get the best deal that you can. But the problem here is that this same mentality is sneaking into our Christian life with God because we're trying to negotiate a deal with God. God has this great treasure that Sandra talked about this morning, this great treasure of, 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 a, of a life lived without regret. 
with a life lived, if, even, if there, even if heaven wasn't promised, because we can live a life so much better with Jesus at the center point of our life. There's such value in that. But the problem is we want to negotiate a deal to get it. How, are we really willing to pay the price, to pay the cost to get it? And let me suggest this one thing to you. God is not a negotiator. God is not a negotiator. He does not set up his word to say, let me negotiate with you. He set up his word to say, let me instruct you. Let me show you. Let me teach you. Let me lead you into the paths of righteousness. And I'm not going to negotiate a deal with you. I'm not going to give you a, a better deal than somebody else. I'm not going to make it easier for you than, I'm, than, I'm, than that other person over there. We all have the same cross to bear. And let me offer this. Who do you think, if God was going to give any person a deal, who do you think he would have given a deal to? Who paid our price? Jesus. If God was going to give anybody a softer deal, you think he would have given his own son who bore the cross for us. It says in Luke chapter 22, verse 42 through 44, Jesus is, is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Do you hear Jesus? He's even asking them. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup. Give me a deal, God. Cut me some slack. Give me a deal, if you can, if you can. But here's the deal. God's justice system is so pure. It's so honest. It's so true that God cannot make a deal with sin. So let me ask the question to Mike. Let me turn this way. Mike, why do you think you can ask God to give you a deal with sin? Why do I think God can let my sin go if he didn't let it go for Jesus? Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus clearly understood whose will he was to follow. He knew. He knew what he was gaining. It says in Hebrews, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew the price. He knew the goal, he knew the prize, and he knew that it was worth it. And then it goes on, and an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So if God was going to negotiate with anybody, he would, he would have been negotiating right then and there. But he didn't. He didn't. So what do we do about that? What do you do about that? How do you handle that? How do I handle that? This is how I'm going to handle it. You can handle it the way you want to. This is the way I'm going to handle it. I'm going to say, Lord, it is worth that much. It is worth all that I can give. Therefore, I'm going to pay the full price. I'm not going to negotiate heaven with you, God. I'm not going to put myself in a position that I think I can negotiate this. If Jesus paid the full price, then I'm going to pay the full price that I'm going to do it. I'm going to live the full. I'm going to live the life like Jesus. I'm going to be a disciple like Jesus. I'm going to do the best that I can do to live a life fully, 100% sold out to be a disciple for you because Jesus did it for me. Martin Luther said, A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. We, if we want something of value, we have to be willing to put into something. We have to be able to put into it. If we want something, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. That's what I've been dealing with. That's what's been rolling around in my heart the last few weeks. I ran across this article that was written. It actually comes from James McDonald and his church, Harvest uh, 
whatever it is, Harvest Tabernacle or Harvest Church, whatever, down in Chicago. And I don't know if you know James McDonald or not, but he's a really a good speaker. He speaks prophetically. Um, that's his gifting as he speaks as a prophet. He's a good teacher. And this article that he um, put out this week was entitled The Cost of Discipleship. And I want to talk about that this morning. And I want to go down and talk a little bit about that because I know that the men that Jesus called, they gave up an awful lot, didn't they? I want to use as a text this morning Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. It says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now let's talk about what is a disciple. What, let's talk about the definition of a disciple. One definition that I read is this. It says, discipleship is the intentional pursuit of Jesus that produces increasing likeness to him by believing what he said and living like he lived. I think I have it on your notes. Um, Grayson, did you hand that out? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Grace, would you hand that out, please? I have some notes that I prepared for you, and so we'll let Grayson and, and Ellie May uh, pass them out if they would. And again, discipleship, the definition reads, discipleship is the intentional pursuit of Jesus that produces increasing likeness to him by believing what he said and living like he lived. It's a pretty big definition. There's five different air characteristics that I want to talk about this morning about being a disciple. Number one, Discipleship begins when you decide to respond to Jesus' call with obedience. It begins when you decide to answer the call by being obedient. You are not a disciple if you are just an admirer of Jesus from a distance. You're not a disciple if you just are an admirer of Jesus from a distance. Jesus', Jesus disciples were called to leave what they were doing and to go to him and to follow him. When they were called, they went immediately. They didn't remain in their old life by living the way they wanted to. They obeyed the call from Jesus to go to Jesus and to leave what they had and to be obediently new men. They chose to make Jesus their new focal point. They chose to make Jesus the center point of their life, whereas before they were the center point. Before it was all about them. It was all about what they were wanted to do. So they chose to move. They chose to move from their way of life to the way that Jesus had for them. So you're not a disciple if you're just an admirer of Jesus from a distance. You have to get close to him and you have to follow him. You're not a disciple if you, if you used to follow Jesus or in the past tense. You're a follower of who is, is in your present tense. We sang the song, here and now. Here and now. We're worshiping Jesus here and now. You're, you're following who is presently in your life. You can't have a life of, oh, I accepted Jesus when I was 12 years old, but I haven't really done much with him since. I've done my own life since. Well, then you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a disciple of Jesus. If Jesus isn't in your life right now, you're not a follower of Jesus. You can't follow someone who you used to follow. You, have to, you follow who you're currently listening to. You're following who you're currently giving your time and attention to. So you can't follow Jesus in the past tense. You have to follow Jesus right now. You're not a disciple if you're not seeking to know what he said or to learn how he lived. Many so-called disciples of Jesus today call themselves a disciple but have very little biblical knowledge or the desire to learn biblical knowledge or to even speak about the man let nevertheless live like him. How many people, how many so-called Christians do you know today can quote Bible scriptures? How many do you know that can go to and, and really 
apply something they haven't learned. You can't apply something you haven't learned it. Are you studying the Bible? Are you in Bible studies? Are you in your own personal devotions? Are you learning things about Jesus so that you can become a follower of Jesus? How can you follow somebody that you don't know about? Many churches today are lacking that. We have Sunday morning services. No Sunday night services anymore. Some of them don't have midweek services. Some of them don't have anything else besides one time of the week where we come together on a Sunday morning and we have church. If that's all it is, folks, let me tell you, if that's all that is in your life, can I be very honest? You're not a disciple of Jesus. If that's all it is in me, then I'm not a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. A disciple is one that will learn about him. A disciple is one that will put things away, that will pick up a new priority and will follow. I will have a desire to read God's word. I will have a desire to talk to people about Jesus, about other, with other Christian men or Christian people and that will want to bring me into their world of what's going on in their life and how Jesus is impacting them and, and their experiences with Christ. Many call themselves disciples, but in all honesty, they're not. It requires a complete surrender to be a disciple of Jesus. Hard words, isn't it? But that's not what I'm saying. It's what the Bible's saying. And I want to be true to the God's word. I want to tell you what God's word is saying. I want to be able to just pour it out. And I, and, and I am because I'm dealing with this in my life. And I'm receiving it. And I just want you to do with it as you would. Number two, disciples are called to a radical, growing relationship with Jesus. Disciples are called to a radical Growing relationship with Jesus. Disciples are called to die to self in order that they may live. What this really means is that we have to commit spiritual... I'm not talking about fleshly. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about my body. But there is, a, there is a spiritual side of me that will either listen to my flesh or listen to God's spirit. Man, okay? It's that man with inside of me. I have to commit spiritual suicide to my fleshly man if I'm going to follow Jesus. I have to say I'm going to put to death that old man within me, that fleshly man that wants to control my habits, that wants to control my time, that wants to control my energies and my focus. And I have to say I'm going to kill you. I'm going to put you to death. I'm just not going to deal with you. I have, I have to die to myself in order that I can live to Christ. I know it's radical, isn't it, to think that, that I have to not just put it away, I have to kill it. I have to do away with it. I have to, I have to murder it. I have to destroy it. If I don't, it'll destroy me. If I don't take control of that, it will ultimately rise up against me and it will destroy me so that I can live for Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 10 tells us this. It says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man, here it is, the mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. There's that word, Diane, that word peace. We can say that a lot, that word peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. There's a lot of words right there. But what it really is saying is that we must die to ourselves and live to Christ. If we, could, if we can create in our heart an area for Jesus to live and for Jesus to have dominance in, and then we give him that dominance by letting the Spirit control our life, not by our own sinful nature wanting to control our life. That is putting Christ at the center. And that's a place where we then can live and we can be radical about Jesus Christ. See, and we can let me give you one other little tidbit here. You cannot do this on your own. It's by the power of the Spirit. By the, but by the Spirit... If the Spirit of God lives in you, then you can kill the fleshly man. Right? I can't do it on my own. I have to allow the Holy Spirit's power to live in me. I have to invite him in my life every day. I have to, I have to make room for him every day. I have to give him time every day. I have to develop. I have to have a mentality. I have to meditate on him every day. I have to let Jesus come into my life every day so that I can live a life that will allow him to be the center point of my life. Jesus wants us to move into a radical relationship with him. Now, radical, that word radical scares people. And I know that it scares people because it scares me. Radical living for anything is extreme. It's over the top. It's not just enough. Radical things are without compromise. To be radical for something or someone, it means that you're bold, you're unashamed to be associated with that thing, whatever it is. You're eager to speak about that thing, whatever it is. You're consumed with getting closer to that thing. You're totally sold out to that thing. Whatever you're radical about, you're totally sold out over it. It just dominates your thoughts. It dominates who you are. We get uncomfortable when someone says that we need to be radical for Jesus. Why is that? Why are we uncomfortable when someone says be radical for Jesus? Because that means that we have to put Jesus in front of everything else in our life that takes our time and our attention. It means that we have to really practice what we preach. We really have to practice what we say we are. And that's radical. And that's scary. And it may make you embarrassed sometimes because you may be with friends on the job or school or whatever and they're mocking Jesus and they're saying the words that are damning him and, and all the bad words that come out of it. And yet, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I must stand for Jesus. And I must be bold for Jesus. I must not be ashamed of who he is. Who he is. Some of the definitions of radical are pervasive, meaning all-encompassing, favoring major changes, meaning giving priorities to the new changes as a result of being radical, removing a diseased source. When you have a radical surgery, it removes all of it. It doesn't leave a little bit in there. When you have a radical something, a radical surgery, it removes the whole thing, maybe even a little bit of the good with the bad. But it doesn't want to risk leaving anything in there that could grow in your life anymore. That's radical surgery. Being radical for Jesus means for us that we must remove the diseased old man, that flesh man that we just killed. We have to put him to death. We have to remove him. We have to throw him out of our life. If we don't remove that diseased source, what eventually happens? It rots, it smells, it decays, it brings infection, it festers, it comes back, it brings other problems that will have to be dealt with later that are bigger than the ones that are right now. It prevents new life from taking root. I must destroy and get rid of. I can't play with it. I can't cover it over. I can't put the rug over it and think it's going to be okay. I have to deal with it. I have to get honest with myself. I have to get honest with people. And say it's time to stop playing the radical or playing the games. Time to be honest. Time to say it's sin. Time to recognize what it really is. That's radical for Jesus. 
That's what we're called to be. Then once we're radical from Jesus, then radical also means growing from root or growing from a new start. Once the disease source has been removed, then new growth can begin to grow fresh where the old stuff was, where the old contaminated rot was. New growth comes out of that. And that's Jesus. A disciple will be required to speak up when others are quiet or afraid to speak. That comes with, being, that comes with the radical nature of being bold for Jesus, unashamed. Luke chapter 9, verse 26 says this, If anyone is ashamed of me, this is Jesus speaking, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let me just paraphrase that a little bit. What that means is this. If you're ashamed of Jesus today, then he'll be ashamed of you tomorrow. If you're ashamed of Jesus today, then the day comes when you stand before God and Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and God looks at, God looks at Jesus and says, Do you know that guy? Jesus is going to say, No, God, I'm ashamed of him. I'm ashamed of him. I don't know that man. Wow, what a terrible thing to have Jesus say, I'm ashamed of me. I don't want to hear Jesus say he's ashamed of me, do you? And the only way now I know that can not happen is if I, can, I cannot be ashamed of Jesus today. I have to be bold for Jesus. And if I'm ashamed for Jesus today, then he's going to be ashamed of me in front of his Father tomorrow. How hard or how easy is it for me or for you to speak up for Christ how difficult is it or easy is it to be associated with the Christian group in school, at work, or in the social crowd? See, a disciple is a person that is bold to defend his relationship with Jesus. A radical person is not afraid to be associated with what he's radical about. If I'm a radical golfer, I'm not afraid to share that with anybody I'm not afraid to share all my stories about my golf games with somebody. I'm not afraid to talk about my most favorite golf courses with somebody that's another radical golfer. But am I that bold about Jesus? See, if I'm having a hard time or if you're having a hard time saying that you follow Jesus like this, ask yourself the question, why? Why? Why am I not excited to share my relationship with others? Well, the next question is, what's your relationship like with Jesus? Is it really personal enough, or is it just relative? See, a personal relationship is one that you can share with anybody at any time because it's who you are. A relative relationship means it's, I'll only share it when I'm in the right crowd of people that I can share it with so that I'm not embarrassed by it, or that I can gain what I want to gain out of it. And, and that's not the relationship we need to have. That's not the relationship that a disciple has. So in the long run, what's more important? What's more important, uh, your friends or Jesus' Father? If you're, gonna, if you're ashamed about Jesus today, what's more important? Do you want to be embarrassed in front of your friends or do you want to be embarrassed in front of God? Number three, disciples are required to leave old dependencies, loyalties, and paradigms. They're required to leave old dependencies, loyalties, and paradigms. A paradigm really is a way of thinking or a process of, of thought. So everything in this life, money, power, and pleasure, that, we so are, that are so important to us today, everything in life takes on a different meaning when I realize that I'm a disciple of Jesus. The first disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus. They left their nets, their boats, all at once. I didn't see any hesitancy here at all. When you read that, I didn't hear them say, hmm, I didn't, I didn't see any thought process that said, wow, let's see, if I follow Jesus, then I have to stop fishing. That means that I have to lose my source of support financially. And it means that I lose my boat and I lose my nets. Basically, I'm going to lose my identity of being a fisherman. I didn't see that in the call of these men when they answered, did you? I saw them leave immediately. It's pretty radical, pretty drastic. For those early disciples, they apparently felt the cry within their heart 
to follow Jesus. Now, they probably knew who Jesus was prior to this time. They probably had been following him a lot, a little, uh, you know, finding his reputation. This wasn't the first time he came on the scene. So they probably had an insight of who he was. And that was the Holy Spirit working in their lives, predetermining them for them what their role was going to be and helping them. So when Jesus did call, there was no hesitancy. What does that mean for us today? Are we supposed to do the same as the first disciples? Are you supposed to leave your job? Are you supposed to leave your source of income today to follow Jesus? If Jesus was here, I mean, if he was standing right here and he said, follow me, I would follow, I would leave my source of income to follow Jesus, right? But Jesus isn't here today. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes and no. We're to, we're to do it just exactly as the disciples did, those early disciples. But that doesn't mean we give up our jobs today. It doesn't mean you give up your livelihood today, physically. But what it does mean is that I give up my dependency on them as my source of my strength and my identity. I have to give up my dependency on them. It means I depend more on Christ as I want to be known as a disciple of Christ rather than an employee of whoever I work for. Or I want to be known as a disciple of Christ rather than an owner of a particular business. I want to put Christ in my life so much that when people look at me and they think of Mike Way, they think of, oh, Mike Way, he's a Christian man. Or not that I was employed by somebody else, or not even that I was a pastor of this church. When they see of Mike Way, I want them to think, Mike Way, oh, he was a disciple of Christ. That's what I want. That's what, it is. That's what it means to be a disciple for Jesus. When they think of whoever your name is, you want them to think, oh, yeah, Drew Oliver. He was a man of God. Drew Oliver. I was impressed by Drew. I saw Jesus come through Drew. What did he do? I have no idea what Drew did. But he was a godly man. That is it. That's your goal. That's what it is to be a Christ disciple today. Discipleship means that we're not stuck in the old way of doing things, that we must be teachable and ready and willing to move as a spirit guides. We talked a little about it in Sunday school today, about how we're supposed to hold the foundational truth of God's doctrine. Stand firm on that. Do not let anybody sway you off God's truths. What God's word says is strong foundational teaching. Do not let anybody push you off of that. But yet... God is in a very creative God. He does have new, new ways of doing things in our lives today. And when we think that we're going to be stuck in it and say, I'm not going to sing that song because we never sang that song before. I'm not going to do this as my expression of worship because I've never worshipped like that before. I'm not going to do that because I, we've always done it this way. That, that's not what we hold on to. If God is working in you, if the Holy Spirit's moving in you, understand that the Holy Spirit is bigger than any man, that no man can ever contain the, the, the life of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to change and bring a newness in your life. Do it. Do it. Be willing to move with him. Be teachable. Be movable when it comes to worshiping God and, and learning how to better serve him. But if we get stuck in the old way to say, oh, no, I've never done it that way before, well, that's not being a disciple of Christ. That's being a disciple of my old man. It's letting the old man, the old repetition, the old I only do it this way mentality set in. And that's not a disciple of Christ. A disciple of Christ is being led in the areas that you don't know where you're going. A disciple of Christ is following Jesus so closely that you don't, you're not even concerned about what's going on around you. That you're so close to Jesus that when he moves, you move. When he does something, you do something. And you don't have to be in control of it. You don't have to have understanding of where it's going. You're just trusting in it. You're trusting Jesus so much that you are being, you're free to move differently that you haven't in the past. Disciples are called to give so that they can keep. Wow, that's an amazing principle that goes against the natural order of mankind. A disciple is called to give so that they can keep. Now, I know our old man, our natural man, this, this, we, it screams up within, of us, within us not to do this. We have this tendency to hoard things, a tendency that, that what, I, what I can see is mine and nobody's going to take it away from me because that's where my dependence is and what I can see. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 36, Jesus again is talking here and he called out, and to the crowd, and he says, Then he called the crowd to bring him along with his disciples, and he said, 
If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Here's that, here's that getting rid of the, the paradigm of, of what's mine is mine, and therefore I have to keep it or I'm going to fail. No, Jesus says, if you really want to save your life, then you need to lose your life. If you want to save your life, which means the life in eternity, then you must lose your life, which means life of temporary earthly pleasures. You lose that. If you lose that, then I will give you a life of eternity. I will give you a life of blessing. I will give you more than what you could ever imagine, for it says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world temporarily, yet forfeit his soul eternally? Which would you rather have? A little bit now or a lot later? Being a disciple, we must realize that we have to give up so we can gain up. We have to give up so that we can gain up. You know, so much of churchdom today, people want the crown, but they're not willing to bear the cross. People want the crown of life, but they're not willing to bear the cross to get the crown. Let me tell you again, right now, and I know that, I know that this is, I'm talking to Mike. If I'm speaking to any individual this morning, I'm talking to me, and that is that I will never wear the crown until I bear the cross. I will never get the glory of God until I allow Jesus' glory to reveal through me, through my suffering, and through my bearing the cross. Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says it this way. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. That's in the message translation. If you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. That's pretty bold, isn't it? It's pretty bold, but Jesus is explaining very clearly to the crowds that, you, that to follow him, you must pay the full price. Jesus is worth it. He's worth the full price, and that it's worth us for us to pay the full price for us. Number four, disciples will be met with the most severe opposition and great pressure to compromise. A radical follower will do this. Disciples are often misunderstood, isolated, and belittled. They are called legalists, bigots, and hate mongers. That's what a disciple is typically called. A radical follower will be considered narrow-minded and unreasonable. And Jesus' followers are called to be radical and unbending when it comes to following the holy standard that Jesus established. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, it says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. There you go, right there. That's why, as a Christian person, as a Christian young person in school, you're laughed at. As a Christian man on a job, you're laughed at. You're ridiculed because the world can't stand you because you're not of the world. You're not of them anymore. See, the world will give us many opportunities to compromise the truth of God's word. They'll say, come on, just give in a little bit. Make us feel like we're doing okay and we'll stop coming so hard against you. You're making it too hard to follow Jesus. You're, ple- you're chasing people away or, or you're not inviting people in. See, th- those, those are the words of the world that say, just bend with me a little bit. Don't be so hard. Don't be so hard. But where in the world in the Bible does it say that? Where does it say in God's word, word that it's going to get easier to be a disciple the further we get away from the cross. 2,000 years later, does it mean it's supposed to be easier than it was then? No, it's not. In fact, it says just the opposite. Just the opposite. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Go in through the narrow way. The gate to destruction is wide, and the road that leads there is easy to follow. A lot of people go through that gate, but the gate to life is very narrow. Very narrow. The road that leads there is so hard to follow that only a few people find it. Do you see why true followers of Christ are called narrow-minded? Because we are. True followers of Christ, we are narrow-minded because we're supposed to go through the narrow gate. 
This isn't a gate that anybody can walk through. The people that walk through are the ones that are narrowly minded, focused on Jesus. Those are the ones that are going to get into heaven. That's why I said at the beginning of the service, there's a lot of people sitting in churches all around the country today, all around the world today, that are not going to get into heaven because they're not narrow-minded on Jesus. They're broad-based, broad-brushed to say, just be a good person. God loves you. Yes, God does love you. But God calls his word very specifically to be a disciple of Christ. That's the cost. So yes, we are narrow-minded. And I know that's contrary to the teaching of the world. But listen, God loves us so much that he gives this word very clearly for us to follow in a sense of love. Number five, disciples follow together. Who are your closest friends? Let me ask you right now, who are your closest friends? Disciples follow together. You've heard the saying, birds of a feather flock together. That's the truth, isn't it? Second Corinthians talks about being unequally yoked. Do not become partners. Chapter 6, verse 18, or 14 through 18. Do not become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership, that's war. This is the message translation, by the way. Is light best friends with dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Who would think of setting up pagan idols in God's holy temple? But that is exactly what you are. Each of us is a temple in whom God lives. God himself put it this way. I will live in them, move into them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all for myself. I'll be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. The word of the master, God. Wow. Who do you hang with? And when you're with your friends, what do you talk about? Are you talking about Jesus? Are you talking about how you can be a better disciple, how they can be a better disciple? It won't take long and you'll understand who your friends are. See, I, I have some friends. I have Dean Clark. Dean Clark, a buddy of mine in Brighton. I'll tell you what, Dean was up here. Dean and Jane were up here a week ago. And if you sat down and talked to Dean for less than, I'll bet you, two or three minutes, you know you know that Dean is a disciple of Jesus because soon, in that three or four minutes, he's talking. Somehow, he's talking about Jesus. Somehow, it's coming out on Dean's life that he loves Jesus. Can you talk to somebody for an hour and they not know who you are? Do your neighbors know who you are? Do your people at work know who you are? If you're that good of a deceiver that they don't know that you're a Christian then let me tell you, you're not a Christian. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not a disciple. You may be a fan, but you're not a follower. And as we conclude this morning, I want to show this video. Larry, if you'd run this video, this will tell us, are you a fan or a follower? The reason the church in America today is merely powerless is because its pews are filled with lukewarm, half-hearted Christians who don't know how to go farther. I've seen a lot of healings, I've seen a lot of miracles, I've seen a lot of the Spirit, but at the same time I've seen a lot of the flesh. The word sin is not something that we talk about too much, not even in the church today. We have struggles, we have strongholds, but very rarely do we say, I'm living a life of sin. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the church is full of sin. The church is full of people that are living sinful lives, regardless of what Jesus did on the cross. We don't know how to press on. We don't know how to keep going. We're okay with just enough. But I'm afraid so many today are so deceived. They think they're just going to walk right in those pearly gates and say, I was just having a good time. See, Jesus knew the importance of going a little farther. He knew the importance of, of pressing on, not stopping where everybody else stops. In the church, we are being taught empty promises. We're okay with going to church every now and then. We're okay with just staying the same little wimpy Christian that we've always been. We're okay with that lack of anointing. You and I, every day, we deal with heartache, 
and we deal with pain and we deal with circumstances and we deal with loss and we deal with trials and we deal with tribulations. And I know that I know that I know my God is bigger than me. He said, Mark, I need you. Peter, I need you. James, John, I need you. I need your voice. Just like he's saying to each and every one of you right now, I need you. But I got a question. What kind of relationship do you have with God? That one little thing, man, I would have, man, Pastor Darrell, I would have the relationship with God of the 21st century. I would be the Moses of the 21st century if it wasn't for that one little thing. And that's why I'm preaching this today. Put the shoes on, won't you? Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I believe that you died for me so that I can live for you. It's heavy, it's hot, the battle's unbelievable. It's tearing at us, and it begins to drag us down. Do you know that God always has a plan? And it started with selection, but as you study the Gospels, you find out that it didn't stay with selection, it then moved to servanthood. Do you understand that you're going through what you're going through to get you closer to God? Do you understand that the God that you worship is all-powerful and nothing? is impossible for my God. We, as Christians, need to go a little farther. We need to go beyond the point that everybody else is going to. And i got to ask you, are you listening to the instructions? And are you doing it His way? Or have you tried to put a whole new spin on it? Secular humanism. And if it feels good, go do it. Let me ask you this. Do you think God's going to set up an appointment with you when He's going to come? And do you think he's going to go announce to you when he's going to leave? I tell you this morning, there's people dying and going to hell because they're doing it their way. Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy on me. He has never made a promise that he will not keep. Totally consecrated to them. Totally sold out. All in. Got him all in. It is finished. So don't go with me. So I will follow. They're eating what he eats. They're talking like he talked. They're serving. Man, you're so close. You're so tight with God. It's being God. Why did they prevail? They believed God. Why did they prevail? They acted in faith. Why did they prevail? They did it God's way. You will hit your mark if you will trust in God. Are you personally radical for Jesus? Let me ask the question. Now, I don't know what that's going to mean for you. And I'm not going to try to put bondage on you. I'm not going to try to say you have to do it a certain way, because I don't know what that way is for you. But I'm just asking you, are you radical for Jesus? What does it mean to you to be radical? I know what it means for me. What it means for me is to be who I am, to be my personality, to be my giftings that God has given me, to have gifted me in that certain area. And I'm not going to stop short in that anymore. I'm not going to leave anything on the table. I'm not going to leave it on the table so when God calls me home, I'm not going to regret because I'm going to go all in. Are you? Can you go all in with me? However it means for you, can you go all in with me? Now I know this means, I know some people in your heart would just love to run to the altar right now and I hope you do, that's awesome. But it's not just what happens here that makes it all in. Yeah, it's important to have a time up here. But it's not just what happens here. What happens when you're all in is what happens in you, the moment you walk out that door. The moment you get in your car, what radio station are you putting on? What are you listening to when you get in that car? Who, who's, where are you going to go this afternoon? What are you going to do this afternoon? What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do on Wednesday and Tuesday? That's all in. That's radical. That's the stuff I'm calling about. If we have ten people in this church that are radical for Christ, ten people are going to be in this community that are going to be radical for Christ, people are going to say, I want to go to that church. I want to go where those people go because they're radical for Christ, because they have something in their life, they have power in their life, they have something that I want. That's radical for Jesus. That's how this church is going to grow. Not by me singing some, or Jackie singing some really good songs, and me having some really nice feel-good preaching in here. That's not going to do it. What's going to grow this church, what's going to grow your family is people being radical in their heart personally. Me, 
I have to be radical for Jesus. In the darkness where everything